Welcome, Mercy Road. Welcome to church, outdoor church at that. And it's great to see you not in your vehicles like we did last week at drive-in church, but out on lawn chairs. And uh, it's a beautiful morning, and yet it's a difficult morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Pastor Mike Lotz. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're joining us online, welcome. If you're joining us via lawn chair, who knew that you could get sunburned at church? So uh, we'll try not to, to be too long here. But seriously, it is good to see you amidst all that's going on. I had planned to preach a, a different message today, and I spent the day yesterday uh, down in South Minneapolis with a group from this church uh, boarding up windows with plywood and sweeping up the debris from a city that has been burned and broken by a number of things. Uh, people are hurting. And so it really felt appropriate today to preach more of a message that I would preach at a funeral. I've done a lot of funerals in my life, and I have a few different templates that I use. One of them comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, and I basically look to the book of Ecclesiastes, the, that spot where it says there's a time for everything under the sun in heaven, which is an interesting statement in and of itself, because how many times have we heard a newscaster say, this is unprecedented. We're living in unprecedented times. Now, it may be unprecedented for us, but Ecclesiastes would differ, the writer would say, other people in other places have gone through things like you're going through. This is part of the human experience in a broken world. And anyways, at a funeral, what I'll do is I'll say, okay, it says in this scripture, there's a time for everything, a season, a cycle. So what time is it now? And I don't mean, is it 11.15 or 3.15 p.m.? What I'll ask the, the crowd at the funeral, the mourners, I'll say, what are we here to do? And then I'll offer a, a few suggestions. And I'd like to do the same today in today's message. So what time is it? Three things. A time to lament. This is an old word for grieving and mourning. A time to lament and admit that this is hard. A time for humility. Humility. And a time for maturity. Spiritual maturity at that. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in the book of Lamentations briefly chapter 3, verse 17 through 33. Lamentations is written by a man named Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a truth-telling prophet living in an age where God's people are drifting from God's plan. They're falling, following after false gods and idols, and they're really on a path towards destruction. In the story of God's people in the Old Testament, there's two bookends. One is the Exodus, where God delivers his people from slavery and bondage into freedom and new life where they can make their own choices and their celebration with that. And then the other bookend is not the exodus, but the exile. The exile is when another country, Babylon, decimates Israel and God allows it to happen because of their rebellion and their insistence that they know how to live better than God knows how they should live. And there is pain in that and uh, Jeremiah is sometimes called the weeping prophet. He wrote a whole book about uh, lamenting, and we call it Lamentations. Let me read it for you. Verse 17 of the third chapter, the weeping prophet has this to say, I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone, and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them well. 
and my soul is downcast within me, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have, what? Hope. So he's remembering how bad it is. He's acknowledging what he needs to lament over and that he calls something to mind and that thing he calls to mind gives him hope. Verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. That's the Hebrew word hesed, my favorite term in the Bible. It means loyal, unbreakable love of God. Because of the loyal, unbreakable, unconditional love of God, we're not consumed, even though it feels like the circumstances are consuming us. He uh, elaborates on that. For his compassions, God's compassions, they never fail. They are new every morning. Just pause for a moment there as we've reflected, and the nation has reflected, uh, all of world news has looked at our city, Minneapolis and St. Paul, and, and the things that have gone on in the evenings and the injustice that led to that, and then these beautiful mornings. Isn't it weird when you watch the news? They, they talk about riots and burning and putting things out, and then they switch to the poor weather guy. And he goes, well, this is awkward, but it's a beautiful morning in Minneapolis. It's kind of what Jeremiah is saying. No matter what happened in the night, in the morning, there's a new opportunity. God's mercy is new every single morning for you and for me. Great is your faithfulness. Verse 24, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. That just means he's all that we actually need. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a young man to bear the yoke while he still is young. That just means spiritual maturity comes with repetition and age. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anybody. In a time when Jeremiah's people were experiencing suffering, some deserved, some not deserved. He's saying, God does not delight in bringing destruction or pain to you. He's like the best of fathers. And yet, here you find yourself in destruction and pain. So what time is it? It is time to lament, Mercy Road. This feels a little bit like a funeral. There's a lot going on. Let's just summarize. George Floyd uh, was was killed by a police officer. That, that's the charge, murder. It, it seems a pretty cut-and-dry case of an abuse of force. Acceleration of force was out of line, and he'll get a trial, and yet this has sparked a deep sense of injustice, and this is all happening amidst a global pandemic. You can't make this up. The economy... Six months ago, was as strong as the American economy has ever been, and now we have higher unemployment rates than the Great Depression. And as a result of George Floyd's death, we have seen four nights, and last night was more peaceful, but four nights of unprecedented rioting, burning, looting, angry, violent, lamenting, and opportunistic crimes as well. And it's complicated. And it all hit home to me, and it all reminded me at once yesterday while a small group of us were 
were boarding up windows for shop owners and sweeping up debris from Mercy Road Church, and we were helping this guy who owns a pawn shop, and he said every single night for four nights, they have broken through the barriers, and they've taken absolutely everything, and we walk in this shop, and it just looks like a war zone, and I've seen a war zone, and it looks like it. And I step back to take a breath after working in the basement of this pawn shop, cleaning up broken pieces of glass and some valuables and one box and all sorts of things. And I step back and I look on the brick wall and the brick wall, the one side of the building that was somewhat not destroyed has graffiti on it and it says, please don't burn children sleeping upstairs. And, I, and honestly, I had to step back and think, this is the street that I've taken my wife on dates before? This is 10 minutes from where I live? This was five minutes from my old house? I, I don't know that I ever saw that coming. And, and there was a moment for me where <coughs> I knew I had to write a new sermon, and we needed to lament. <coughs> Do you know how to lament? A lot of us don't. A lot of us grew up in families or systems or philosophies where it was very valued and prized to respond to pain with a stiff upper lip, where you were told to never show pain and weakness, and pain is just weakness leaving the body. So when someone says, how are you doing? And even if your world's falling apart, you're supposed to say, I'm doing wonderful. It's great. What an opportunity glad to be motivated to get out there another day, but on the inside, you're kind of falling apart. The scripture would say, stop that. A third of the Psalms, of the 150 Psalms, are called lament Psalms. They're honest gut cries that say, God, I don't understand where all this pain is coming from. I, I don't know how much my part has played into it or his part or her part, but it's overwhelming and it hurts. I don't know how you allow it, but it hurts. Would you do something about it, God? That's lament. Americans are not good at lament because lament is not an instant process, and we like microwaves and things happening with two clicks of the mouse. A lament takes a little while. It's not going to happen in an hour or even a day. There are seasons of lament, and the weeping prophet leads us into this season of lament. And he gives us language for this. He says in verse 19, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them well, and my soul is downcast within me. Very interesting tense that he's using. Even though it's happening to him right now, he's saying, I'm intentionally thinking about what I'm thinking about. I'm not just going to use something to numb out the pain. I'm going to think about how this hurts, and I'm going to sit in my pain and wait on the Lord. I believe Mercy Road, that we're called to learn how to do that. And it's not easy. It's a skill, if you will. Perhaps one of the ways we learn how to do true biblical lament is to recognize that it's not just a time for lament right now, it's also a time for humility. So if you're taking notes, it's a time for lament, but it's also a time for humility. There's a C.S. Lewis quote that just slays me. Whenever I think I'm growing and becoming really spiritual and mature and I start to kind of feel proud of myself, I remember this quote that C.S. Lewis has to say on humility. Here's what he writes. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. A biggish step it is, too. 
At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Let that kind of sink in. C.S. Lewis is observing that the human beings who think they have arrived and that they don't struggle with pride, they actually are struggling with pride more than everybody else. And I've been there. I've been there at times. You, do you know how you know you're there? If you are explosive in your offense, your spirit of offense at everybody else, when you notice pride in other people, and you have no tolerance for it. How dare she be so prideful? How arrogant is he? I can't believe they are so sure of themselves. If that just, just infuriates you, it's probably a symptom that you need to address your own arrogance, your own pride. And I'm no different. And neither are you. Pride, I suppose, could be compared to the coronavirus. Science tells us in time that we'll all get this. We'll develop a herd immunity, but it, it will be a version of a strand within all of us. And imagine how silly it would be for one of us to say, not me, I'll never get it. And if I do, it'll never hurt me. I'll never have a symptom because I am impervious to that virus. I'm the one that's different. Pride's viral. And what God wants for us is humility. Part of the ways I believe we we become humble, is God gives us exposure and experience in our life that we can't fully integrate. And there comes a time when we're tempted to have a strong, crisp opinion, and that then God brings our mind and our memory back to some experiences. And I don't like preachers who just talk about themselves, but I want to just model some vulnerability that can lead to humility about some of my story. Some of you may or may not know I'm the son of a police officer. And I have this early memory because my dad really wanted to expose me to poverty and inequity and racial diversity. He would take me in the squad car. I mean, the, the laws have changed. I don't think you could take kids that young in the squad car on ride-alongs. But I regularly found myself seeing things that, uh, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds probably wouldn't see, but, but it, it's formed me, and it's made me a more humble person when it comes to this type of stuff. And so I have this memory of walking into this run-down apartment, probably blocks from where uh, everything was burned in South Minneapolis, and it's years ago, and I see five or six young black kids, African-American kids. One was probably about my age. And why were we there? Was it a domestic or something? No, it, it was some minor call, but my dad had noticed that they didn't have any food, and so we were bringing in bags of groceries. And I remember that being very formative, and I remember just not understanding, why, why don't they have groceries, Dad? Now, how do you explain that to a 12-year-old? You know, wh Why would there not be enough food? Why can't they just work? Why can't they just get money and buy groceries like we buy groceries? And it started to dawn on me that not everything is distributed evenly in life. Not everything is fair. Some people have a harder time than others. And sometimes that has to do with the color of their skin and the culture they find themselves in and the sins of ancestors and a hundred other variables. And then my dad said, now we're going to go get them mattresses. And I thought to myself, why would they need mattresses? It was then explained to me that they've never had mattresses. They just sleep on the floor. You know, at the time, kids, 12-year-olds, kind of think it's cool to sleep on the floor. 
But it did dawn on me as we carried up these mattresses with some other volunteer police officers that I've slept on a mattress every night of my life, except for the nights I didn't want to and I camped out or something. But their experience was completely different than mine, even though we're the same age. This is the first night that they'll ever sleep on a mattress. Things like that have a way of sitting with you. And, and if God had only given me that experience, I think I might be really opinionated that really the, the problem might be racial inequity. And it's just that cut and dry. And yet the person who was showing me the racial inequity and solving the problem was a police officer who I trusted. And he helped solve that problem. And so you see, I can't stand with arrogance on one side and say, they're right. And I can't stand on the other side and say, they're right. And this was driven home to me further within the same year we lived in this cul-de-sac and uh, my dad has a strange sense of humor. There was a death threat because he put somebody in prison. He was an undercover cop at this point and the guy didn't like being put in prison for uh, narcotics. And he said, I'm gonna get you and your whole family and burn down your house and my dad's response to that was to joke with the neighbor guy, Paul, and he said, hey, no worries, Paul. Uh, we just changed the name on the, on the mailbox, so we're good. <laughs> and I remember overhearing this and thinking, does somebody really hate my dad so much that they would burn down the house with me in it? And I remember thinking, what a tough job. And I remember him laughing about that and then going off for a 12-hour shift all night. And I remember this fear, like, my dad's not home. What's going to happen to us? Well, he protects everybody else. The world is more complicated, and in fact, it's too complicated for arrogance. It requires humility, and if you think you're not conceited, you are conceited indeed. And Jeremiah found himself in a society where everyone was so sure how things ought to be. And they were not open to this one beautiful phrase. I was on a Zoom call with our superintendent, from our denomination recently, and if you've met Russ, Pastor Russ, he's preached here. He's kind of like William Wallace, if William Wallace was a pastor, you know, Braveheart. He's an all-in guy, um, and he's been doing ministry in inner city Minneapolis on the north side for 20 years, and he takes a vacation like once every decade. He finds himself in Arizona during this hellish week and during the tragedy of George Floyd and all the riots that have come after, and now we're as pastors meeting for a regularly scheduled business meeting on Zoom, and Russ is weeping, so much so that he kind of asked me to lead the meeting. And he's saying things like, has everything we've done for 20 years come to nothing? Where's the church? How could this happen? Now, Russ is somebody that doesn't just take racial uh, unity and the biblical call to racial equality and and diversity and unity and harmony seriously. He takes it so seriously that he has a bunch of biological white kids, and then he goes, you know what? There's a bunch of African-American kids that don't have parents, so I'm going to adopt six of them. Yes, he has 12 children, six African-American and six Caucasian. Now, what's so interesting about that is in these times when everybody has an opinion, about race relationships between African-American and black and brown people and in justice and the police, Russ could really lay down with a lot of certainty, this is how it is. And as you argue back to Russ, he kind of has a trump card because 
do you have six white kids and six black kids? I don't. But you see, Russ went on in the Zoom meeting to talk about how racism really is real. And he didn't even know how real it was until he adopted six African-American kids. And he would take his white kids and his black kids into a store, and the store owner would keep a special eye on these African-American kids and treat them differently. And he would have to walk up and say, this is my son. You know, it's pretty easy to overplay a problem or to underplay a problem. It's very difficult to accurately diagnose a problem. Here's how Russ does that. He's constantly saying this important little phrase that I hope you find contagious. I could be wrong, but. I could be wrong. But my sense is that when I take my kids into the store, there really is a difference. I could be wrong, but my experience has told me that it's complicated to be a police officer today. I could be wrong, but lamentation does include anger, but it should not include burning down a city. I could be wrong, but the enemy, Satan himself, probably has no larger priority than to divide the body of Christ along political lines and priorities. I could be wrong, but from God's point of view, each one of us, even the ones that are hard to love, are like a little kid sleeping upstairs. Therefore, the building should not be burned down. Are you the type of person that has come to terms with that phrase and the call to humility? If not, I pray that you would incorporate that phrase frequently this week. I could be wrong, but I think this is what God is showing me. Thirdly and lastly, it's not just a time to lament. It's not just a time for humility. According to Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, it's a time for maturity. And we really see this in this call in verse 28. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope, for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion so great is his unfailing love for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief on anyone that last verse he does not willingly bring grief or affliction on anyone so do you see what's happening jeremiah is being invited to basically mourn in sackcloth and ashes which is a really interesting ancient way to mourn basically think of putting on a burlap bag you know how burlap is very irritating to your skin Imagine just wearing like burlap underwear, burlap shirt, burlap pants, and then shaving your head. That's part of uh, mourning. And, and in the ancient world, you don't have the fancy razors. Notice no nicks on my head this morning when I shave because we've got really good shaving cream. They didn't have that. And those little Mach 4, Mach 5, they're going to probably have Mach 12. Pretty soon I'll just push a button, my head will be shaved. But in the ancient world, they'd have to use like an axe or a knife, and so they'd have all kinds of nicks, and they're in burlap, and they're throwing dust as an irritant all over them, as a symbol that I want something on the outside to feel like how I should be feeling on the inside for the tragedy that is around me. And then I'm going to crawl around and really be humble and, and thoughtful and pensive in my lamentation, and that will produce a kind of spiritual maturity. 
that is needed in this situation. But then that last line, for the Lord does not willingly inflict grief or trials or trouble or pain on anybody. Spiritual maturity, in other words, could be defined in one phrase. It's used throughout the New Testament. Meekness. Not weakness. Meekness. In Greek, the the word meekness really um, paints a, a picture of a stallion with a bridle, a stallion that has been broken, broken in a good sense. I mean, a wild stallion in the ancient world is the strongest, most powerful source of locomotion or towing capacity or war making that exists. I mean, think of how strong a horse is, let alone a stallion. It could run you over, it could kick you dead, it could lead you into battle, it could plow your field. But that is if it is broken properly, if it responds to this tiny little bit in its mouth and the will of a good and kind and wise master. A wild stallion will just cause destruction until it starves to death. But a broken stallion can build a whole civilization and contribute to human flourishing and defend that which it has built But it all depends on meekness. And the biblical word for meekness reminds us, if if we knew Koine or common Greek in the New Testament, sparkled throughout these, sprinkled throughout these letters, meekness, be meek, be meek, be meek. What does it mean? It means having strength under control. Doesn't mean weakness. It doesn't mean domination. It means being the type of person who's comfortable in your skin, comfortable in the gifts that God has given you, but is slow to speak, quick to listen, and quick to be guided by that little bit in your soul that is the Holy Spirit, sensitive to every movement and motion. Now is a time, I believe, for lamenting and mourning. It has to be. This is just too sad to brush off. Let's not do that. It is certainly a time for humility because The key to lamenting well in a God-honoring way is humility. Not being so arrogant and certain of how things ought to be or are or what would work or what wouldn't work or who's at fault. But it's also a time for spiritual maturity. And what does spiritual maturity look like in a time of lament? It looks like meekness. Are you a meek person? Typically, based on our personality wiring, we've we err on one side or the other. We err towards weakness, where we just kind of put our head down and we, we say, I don't have an opinion, I don't like conflict, just, just it's fine, let's not think about this. Or we err on arrogant domination. We're all wild stallion and there's no bit. You know, it's those darn Democrats, you know, those Republicans, you know, if I was in charge, this is what I would do. I can't believe they did that, therefore... God is calling you and me to a new life of spiritual maturity that will be defined by meekness. Now, here is the irony, and we'll see as time plays out, but the irony is that George Floyd, as best we can tell, in his uh, biography, he's described as a gentle giant. He's just a massive guy, and yet he's constantly accommodating himself to other people kind of stepping back and trying not to overwhelm people. He's mentoring kids. He is a follower of Jesus Christ by all attestation. His girlfriend was interviewed, and she was kind of baited uh, by the reporter, at least the one time I saw this, 
the reporter basically was trying to get her mad. Like, what would you want people to know? What would George want? And she, and she honestly said something that brought me to tears. She said, I want people to know that George was a man of God. He believed everybody in this world should get a chance. He believed there are no throwaway people. There's nobody that doesn't deserve love. He always showed that. Maybe <clears throat> when somebody who is profoundly meek, not perfect, but meek, is kneeled on for nine minutes, and it looks to everybody who's been trained in escalation of force, like I've been trained in the military of escalation of force, that it was not the case that a minimum amount of, of force was used to accomplish the mission, but there was excessive force. Maybe when excessive force on the surface, that's what it looks like, he'll get a trial, but maybe when the impression is that excessive force was used on a meek person, strength under control, all hell breaks loose. But here's the good news. There was excessive, unfair, unjust, and demonic force used on the one person who is the most meek individual that has ever existed. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and the devil kneeled on his neck more than nine minutes for three days. Our Lord and Savior felt just the total unleashed fury of hell itself and there is a difference. George Floyd was a good man, but he was not a savior, and he was not a perfect man, just like I'm not a perfect man, and neither are you, man or woman. But maybe when the most meek, innocent, gentle giant that ever existed, Jesus Christ himself, came and laid his life down for many, all hell did break loose. In the best sense of the word and the phrase. Maybe it's the case that long ago we were invited to take a spiritual meal as the historic church, and I'd like us to do that now. And maybe it's the case that as we take the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, we are reminding ourselves that hell has been broken, that hell has been ultimately defeated, that there will be a day when cities don't burn, excessive force is no longer used, racial divisions do not happen, Opportunists and anarchists do not take advantage of lamentation. And all people realize that we're all kids sleeping upstairs and our Father desperately wants no harm to come to any of us. And so as we uh, conclude this lamentation sermon, would you take the wafer? On the night that the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you willingly. I lay it down. After supper, he reclined as was custom and he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming my death, my resurrection, and my return. They couldn't have known then what it meant, but we, Mercy Road, do know what it means. We know that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is hope. His mercies are indeed new every morning. May you, this weekend, on this beautiful new morning, have the courage to lament in all humility. And may God 
develop a deep meekness and spiritual maturity so that we may be a blessing and a light to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite Ari to just close us in a time of reflection. Um, If you're going to get a sunburn, you can move into the shade here. But we'll just have a a closing song, and I would just invite you to intercede for Minneapolis and St. Paul in the world. There's riots going on in other cities as a result of what's happened right here 10 minutes away. To also search your own heart and say, God, if I've been the type of person that's been anything but meek, that's been arrogant and sure of myself, that's been overly simplistic about a highly complex world, forgive me and help me to become the man or woman you want me to be. Let's do some uh, business with the Lord in Jesus' name.